Welcome to the Authors Who Lead podcast. This podcast is dedicated to you, people who want to be inspired by authors, leaders, and the messages they share. This is such an important podcast to us because we help uncover what goes on behind the scenes when authors are writing their book. We talk about the process. We talk about where they get big ideas, and you can listen in on those conversations. We can't wait for you to join us. So let's get started. Hey, everyone. Asul Tronis. Welcome back to another episode of Authors Who Lead. Today, my guest is Quan Huynh. He has been described as a mighty warrior, a magician, and a mountain of goodness. He is the author of the book Sparrow and the Razor Wire, a book about his transformation inside a place many see as the end of the road. In his book, he shares the journey of redemption and recovery or discovery that led his to his ultimate freedom. He found that no matter the prison, the key to unlocking the door is in each one of us. He works as the post-release program manager for DeFi Ventures, a nonprofit helping those with a criminal past transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. And after spending 22 years in prison in and out of correctional institutions, Quan was paroled from a life sentence in 2015. In the following year, he received the Peace Fellowship Award for his work with Alternatives to Violence Project. Quan has been featured entrepreneur and has spoken at One Last Talk and has appeared on several podcasts just like this, where she discusses how the challenges he faced in that and the narrative of those who were formerly incarcerated. Welcome to the show, Quan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. What's amazing in the way that the world works, and we were talking just before this started, how the serendipity kind of happens where, you know, you, you listen to an episode of one of our guests, Rob Angel, who was the creator of Pictionary, and that you had had him come in and visit in the prisons before, that you and I met a year ago when you were talking about writing your book and what you need to do and what you're working on. And it's sort of interesting how the synchronicities of the world can bring people together when you're not expecting it. And I've been looking forward to reading your book for such a long time. I'm so grateful that I got to have a copy and learn so much about your story, the triumphs and, and tragedies, as well as the things that you're doing now. I want to use this opportunity to allow you to set the stage, you know, help us understand how a young person who starts his life out kind of riddled with challenges. And one moment in, in particular stood out to me when you were a young boy and you got your brother got teased on, on a playground and you didn't stand up for him. And that seemed like such a pivotal moment for a young boy to have to go home and, and explain to your father why you didn't stand up for him. And that seemed to be like a pivotal moment within your own young mind thinking that maybe you could have done something more. You tell us in your own, your own words, what was the, the moment where you, you really had to, to question as a young person what you were doing with your life and why you were maybe acting, behaving the way you were? Sure. Yeah, I guess I'll start with that moment. We lived in Provo, Utah. I was maybe eight years old and I was playing with our, my brother and I were playing with our G.I. Joe action figures in the streams of Utah. And every summer the snow melts and those streams get filled up with water. And we had this game we played where we make rafts out of our igloo, our popsicle sticks, and we put our G.I. Joe action figures on it and they roll down the stream. So there were just some older kids and some adults that were yelling down to us. I mean, by that time, I'd experienced enough to know, you know, I mean, and now I know it'd be racism. Back then, it was just, I thought we were just teased because we looked different or there was something wrong with me or with our family. But the kids and the adults had told us, get out of our country, go back home, goops. And my brother and I, I guess, I mean, when I look back now, I guess, I guess I just thought we were a little bit braver because they looked so far away. There was a big fence between us. And we told them, come make this. Well, those kids jumped the fence, chased us down, ended up shoving my brother to the ground and 
putting dirt in his mouth and I stood there and watched. I didn't jump in. I didn't know what to do. I was just scared. And we had to go home and my father had to tell me, you know, why did you let this happen to your younger brother? You have to protect your family. And I just remember feeling so ashamed as a boy, like, man, I let down my brother. I let down my family. I let down my father. And then on top of that, you know, my father never spoke about it again because I'm sure he forgave me. But in my mind, it made everything worse that no one spoke about it again. And it just became worse in my mind. The next opportunity I have or from here on out, I have to protect my family. I can't let people hurt my family or my loved ones. And that's just the mindset I carried on into my latter years. Right. And you mentioned that your family, you were born in Vietnam and you, your family emigrated here and your younger brother was actually born here. But with that time, during the times of, of you writing about your childhood, I think it was the early 90s, so much was different in the world and yet so much is the same when we think about what people's view of the world, the, of, of immigrants, of the other, or anybody doesn't look like you. And, you know, that pathway where really began pretty early for you, where you talk about in your book about the path of violence that you started down. You know, it's not often that people who are in prison get a chance to tell their story. But I want you to kind of walk us down a little bit like a snapshot because I want people to dive into the book to read. Really, I felt like I was walking side by side with you, knowing and understanding mm-hmm. the, the, the challenge you had about how, how difficult it was and where the moments of violence began because so many people, you know, just see or hear about gangs or hear about people who are in prison and don't have a sense of the humanity behind it. And I want to help people understand that from that young child, you know, feeling a little bit disgraced, maybe a little humiliated and definitely disrespected. How did it start to evolve that you started to get pushed into violence? Because your father was a bit of an activist helping immigrants and standing up. I had, had dreams of you wanting to go to West Point, but things didn't turn out as they had hoped or even you had hoped. Yeah. Well, my father gets diagnosed with leukemia and his condition gets worse. And that's when we moved out from Utah. We moved out to Southern California where his side of the family lived. And this is my first time going to school with kids that are, you know, black. Hispanics and other Asians and in particular other Vietnamese. But even in going to school with other Vietnamese, I didn't feel like I fit in because I was uh, soon teased because I couldn't speak Vietnamese well. A lot of them could not speak English well. Although, you know, there was a lot of little other Vietnamese kids that could speak well. I just remember in particular, I just held on to the experiences of the ones that teased me or the ones that made fun of me. And it just further reinforced my mind, like, I don't fit in. My father ends up passing away from leukemia when I was 13. By that time, I found little bits of, little bits of fitting in with other peers, but most of like them were like other kids that, that had older brothers and I hung out with those guys and these guys, a lot of them were like, you know, I would have to say like, that's where I basically got my role models was older guys that were already running on the streets where then it became normalized where this is your group. You have to protect your group. And then by the time I'm 17, I'm already, I was already arrested for the first time going and then going into juvenile hall, being terrified of what's going on in there, yet seeing as long as I am inflicting violence on somebody else, then I won't be picked on and just believing this is the way to be recognized and more importantly, not get victimized or not get picked on. And it was just something that I just started believing, okay, the more terrified I got of people around me, the more I would be the first one to volunteer to inflict violence on others. So hopefully showing this brave face could make me not be picked on. And that was just my mentality. 
probably unsubconsciously, I, I didn't realize it till later on during my latter years and, and doing a lot of like self-reflection and, and self-discovery. And then even in the book, just trying to figure out my thought process and understanding it and writing it in a way that, yeah, this is what I thought. And, and yeah, it's totally wrong, but that is just what I thought at the time. Right. So you were put into prison for murder. You, in fact, you describe in your book, the, in a brief way, the, the surrounding circumstances of the times you were put in prison, but you were given a life sentence, right? Without, well, you know, presumably without parole. You talk about in the book how there's such a small fraction of 1% that ever get parole, particularly in California, if you're on there for, for murder. And inside of prison, you, you talk a little bit about prison culture, about the same sort of mentality you just described where you have to protect, you have to defend the group you belong to, you have to have keep safe face in all these different ways in order to survive. But you started to notice and find a different path. When was the moment while you were in prison that you started to shift? It was probably around the 10th or 12th year of my life sentence. Several things were happening at that time. I received a letter from my younger brother with pictures of his daughter, which is my niece. And seeing her pictures for the first time of a little baby, it just took me back. She looked just like my brother. So it Mm -hmm. took me back to just my childhood. You know, this was my younger brother. And now he has a daughter. And what am I doing? Like, how did my life lead this way where he can bring life onto earth? And here I am. I'm in prison for murder. And my grandfather, my father's father passes away that same year, right around that time. And which also reminded me of my own father. And around that time, I think I was around 34, 35, 36, around there. And I started asking myself the question, like, am I meant to die? Like, how did my life end up like this? And contrasting that with my father's life on his, what, 38, 39 years on earth and how many people he had affected in a good way, whereas I had destroyed and caused pain and, and so much pain and anger on the world. And at the time, so these are questions that were popping up in my head. And you know, the mm-hmm. saying, like, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, you know, there I started noticing certain mentors around me that were on the right path. I've always been a bookworm. So I was reading like my whole prison sentence. I had always been reading, but just around that time, I was, you know, reading books on like entrepreneurship and business and personal development. But one book led me to another and I ended up on these books of the saints in particular, stories about saints that had also failures in their lives, but yet they went on to create or leave some type of legacies. I was really drawn to those stories, which in turn led me to books on like meditation and all these things, I guess, just made a perfect storm in my mind, my heart, my soul, where it was just one day on a prison yard. Early in the morning, I was standing by the fence and my head filled with these readings I had been doing. And then I just asked myself, like, why does prison have to be punishment? Why can't this be a place where I could remake myself, even if I'm supposed to die in here? And then I realized I could. And, you know, just that small, subtle shift in thinking uh, made all the difference in the world. And, you know, I remember distinctly that sun was coming up over the hills that morning. I was able to feel the warmth, individual blades of grass. I saw the drops of dew. And up above me in the razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. And yeah, I tell people it probably been chirping my whole prison sentence and I had not heard it. But that day I heard it. And from that day forth, it began the process of where I saw this is a journey. This is not a place of punishment. It became a place where I could connect with other human beings, like, you know, many of them ahead of me, some further along, many of them not perhaps awakened yet, but we were all on a journey together. 
in this place. And that's just how I approach it each day from, okay, what's my lesson to learn today? How can I make myself better? And as I started to make myself better and I'd say heal, then I saw opportunities where I could begin to make an impact and help others in their healing journey. And that's that was basically how the world just became free for me in there, where I was no longer, yes, I was incarcerated, but I no longer felt imprisoned in any way. Mm. That's a powerful moment that occurred. And of course, the namesake of the book is named Sparrow in the Razor Wire. So I want to paint a picture, clear picture, because I want people to understand that violence was in your, at that point, was deeply in your DNA. Like that was, a, yes. it sounds very peaceful and awakening. But until that point, there were times when you, you stood around and not only were you a part of the drive-bys that caused people's death and put you in prison, but you were involved in fights in prison and you were, you know, involved in so much that it wasn't as though breaking free was easy. It wasn't hard either, the way you described it. It just was a moment in time. But describe for people what a day was like in prison for someone who's maybe never even set foot in something that's like as heavy as someone who's in there for a life term so that they can understand how powerful that moment of epiphany really was. Yeah, I mean, before that Baron Razewire moment, it just felt like lonely. I felt hopeless and filled with anger, but not even knowing it. Mm-hmm. You know, walking through the world, like I, I had a chip on my shoulder because I got screwed over by the world. I got a raw deal. I got, there was uh, somebody from my gang that testified to me. There were people on this yard that were just like him or, you know, or, you know, there was a judge, there was a very judgmental part of me that, that looked, okay, well, this person over there is in for this crime or oh, that one over there. I'm not as bad as that one because he's in for a rape. This one is killed his wife or, and it was always this sense of finding or comparing myself to others just so I can make myself feel better. So I was, I would have to say very ugly, judgmental, egotistical, arrogant person that um, had no self understanding. Like there was no sense of awareness in how I came across in the world to people around me. It wasn't a kind way I looked on people. It was very harsh and critical, very similar to the way I judged myself. But I judge others the same way. So it was, a, you know, just living in there and just being very rigid in these are rules and this is how people have to abide by them. If someone doesn't abide by them, then, oh, if, if violence is inflicted upon them, then, oh, well, that's what that's what happens. Uh, they deserve it. So I truly believed in, in all those things. And it was a part of my my belief system that I actually had to deconstruct and start to admit to myself, you've been living a lie all these years. And. These rules that you created, like I created in my head, were all fake. And, and I just followed everyone else and just really believed in it. But yeah, that's a small glimpse, I guess, heart. You know, prison has its own culture, its, its own mm-hmm. type of world. And, you know, I could see it now where if I remember back then, it was just something that we all, or especially me and, and many of the people I associate, we believed like, okay, this is how you have to conduct yourself. Everything is about image or reputation. It's a very lonely and and ugly way to live. Mm, That's an incredible moment. When you had that epiphany, I mean, this it's 12, 13 years in, like before you even have this epiphany, what was next? What, I mean, obviously you were in there and I don't know if you had the same belief that other people might have is that you, you were there and and falsely you, you didn't do the thing that they had accused you of. But in your book, you talk about knowing that you had done the thing you weren't disillusioned. In fact, you were really clear about the fact that I was not honest about, I was trying to get out of being incarcerated, like lying, you know, under oath and all these things. But when you had that moment of epiphany and you saw that sparrow 
What happened next? So from there, it wasn't like, okay, I see the sparrow, I hear the chirping, and I'm healed. And no, it was definitely like that. It was more, okay, now let's start figuring this out. Like, what does this really mean? How did I get here? You know, like one of the lines in my book says, I was not born a murderer. And when I realized that, like it was a series of choices that I made over the course of my lifetime. You know, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes from him was in Mere Christianity. It was one about where he said, he was speaking about choices and he's speaking about innumerable choices that we make over the course of our lifetime. These choices turn us into a hellish creature or a heavenly creature. So I love that that quote so much. And that's mm. really gave me a perspective. Like, how do I figure out my choices, how my choices got me here? But then more importantly, if I can and really grasp and understand that it was choices, r- numerous wrong choices that got me here, then why couldn't I make myself into a better person by intentional purposeful choices each day from here on out. And that's just how I approached my days in there, which after I started doing that, then that's where, you know, this the sense of ownership of my life, the sense of the way I describe what my actions are. And I compared that to other men in there. And, you know, there were some that said they didn't do their crime, whether they did or not. But it's just this tenant, this human tendency I saw around me of justifying or casting ourselves in a good light. But then I always thought this is not being authentic and this is not what personal responsibility is from what I'm reading in these books. If I, if this what I is, if this is what I'm aspiring to do, this is how I think I would want to show up and I begin to practice it. Of course, many times I would fail, but at least at night I had this habit of writing a journal to myself and what did I do right today or what can I commend myself for and where did I fail? But failing using that word intentionally to say failing means that it's not the end of the world for me because I'm going to slip. And then I, but then how do I build on what I learned today and apply it tomorrow? And that's just how I continue to approach it. And suddenly prison, you know, was, yeah, I, I was, I was imprisoned, but I had this huge sense of liberation from in there every day. And, and it just became like, even on top of that, this, this sense of I could feel the hurt in the other men around me. How do I also get them to this, this place of healing and wonder and curious wonder of the world and, and what we could do to make ourselves better? That's just how I approached it. Yeah. In the book, you say, detaching from the world, my faith was easier choice to make. 25 years later, I realized it was these series of disconnections that made me capable of murder. The disconnect, this, this idea. So you talked about helping others. How do you help someone who is totally disconnected from their self, who don't see themselves anymore? Like, and I want you to kind of walk, because that's part of your healing was actually then connecting with other people through this process of like an awakening, for lack of a better word, of self. So what was that like helping or or speaking with other people who, you know, you're no longer the same person, even though you're in the same place, Mm -hmm. to be able to connect with other people who may not be able to see themselves the way you were starting to see yourself then? Well, I think a lot of it was understanding my own journey. And then when I saw some man in the same type of pain, or maybe even a different pain, but but there's like, you know, there's this, this, I used to call it like the thousand yard stare where they're so disconnected when I'm talking to them, they're not looking at me in the eye and they just tell this script. Like there's a, there's a narrative that's been spinning out of their, that they spun up in their head and they just recite the same story over and over and over over the years. And they just take on this weird stare. And I, I, I know that's there because that was mine for years. I would have to say. So I think. Being able to understand that and understanding my own journey, it gave me a sense of this is just a lost soul behind those eyes. So 
So how do I let him know I am there? And sometimes they know for a split second or sometimes they'll know more. And I just see they start opening up. And once they start opening up, then they'll come. You know, I, it's never something that I've forced on them. It's more they, they approach me and, you know, suddenly ask me out of the blue, like, hey, what's, can you help me with this? Or can you look through this? Or, or, hey, do you have a book you can recommend? So that's just where things start opening. Or sometimes they're talking about something I know, okay, this person is venting. He's not asking me to fix a problem. But I think just the act of listening to them has them starting to feel connected again in a small way. And then that's where I could continue to build and nurture that relationship with them where, okay, this is a man that I think I could help. Or sometimes I can't even help them where they'll feel a little bit of connection and then they're terrified, especially when we start talking about things and I'm reflecting back to them what they're saying. A lot of times the reaction can be like, no, you're wrong. This goes against what, you know, especially if it goes against this identity that they've built up for themselves, it becomes terrifying to admit it. So they'll become angry or furious at me. And that's when I know, okay, this is what happened. So then usually it's more, okay, I'm sorry. This is what I see. This I could be totally wrong, but this is what I'm hearing from you. I'll be here tomorrow if you want to talk again. And it's just more like that where I just have to, and sometimes they'll never show up again, but I had to realize that that person is not ready at this time for me to help them in some way, perhaps. Hopefully, I push them in some way to go to another person that could help them and they could discover something about themselves. So I think just realizing that I was not there to save them or even save anybody, but perhaps to provide some small measure of healing to get them to to move along on their journey to have other people help them. And I'm, I think it made it a little bit easier where where I felt I didn't feel like I had to save every single person on, in that place, which I right. can't. Right. So let's, let's help people see the transformation. You, you have this epiphany. You start helping people, see people notice you in a different way, or at least they start seeing you. Maybe the way you noticed the sparrow that day, they noticed you. Help us walk us through the steps because you yeah. talk about spending time in a law library, reading a lot and, and having a mentor within the prison system that start helping you start think differently. Let's talk a little bit about that transition from just an awareness to taking action. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said earlier, you know, when a student's ready, the teacher appears, and I saw all these opportunities around me. I actually checked in and spoke to a therapist, and I began 25 years after my father's death, began mourning and grieving his de- his death. Once I understood that, once I understood my own process, and you know, being that consummate bookworm, I pour myself into understanding books on grief and loss, and and understanding, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's theories and things like that, just just really taking into it, I noticed that there were form that there were men grieving all around me, and it didn't have to be losing somebody or losing a loved one. It was just, you know, it, it came in the form of them being transferred to other prisons and losing all their friendships, them being denied multiple times at the board, and basically just losing their sense of hope, losing friendships, or or you know getting in arguments with, with a good friend on a prison yard, but then they don't talk to each other for years because they're both too proud to ever talk about it. And suddenly they've lost a friendship. So I actually put together a syllabus and, and submitted it to the prison psychologist who loved it. And we created our first grief and loss group. And I saw the sign up list. So even in doing that, I started to see that I could affect or make an impact on that yard, you know, so, you know, a little forgotten corner of the world that the that the world has shoved us into. I was there and yet I saw I can make an impact on that little yard in this little piece of our world. And it just, I don't know, it made me feel alive and it gave me a sense of purpose for once in my life. So then I got involved with other groups and it's just starting to see the impact. And, and the I would have to say how 
me and other men that were on this path, we got to slowly change the the culture of that prison yard from like one of like violence and 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 harshness to one of like you know shared understanding and 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 the beginning of treating each other with dignity. And this is on a prison yard, and I and I saw it firsthand over those few years that I was there. And I'm I'm sure that there were many men that that took up that same work behind me after where. Yeah, we could change. We could change this place. It's such a powerful testament to that shift. So you talk about the journey of trying to understand the you call it the board, the the, the commission that allows and hears prisoners' requests for parole. Talk a little bit about that journey because you know you talk about learning and diving into understanding. You know what are the odds and chances of being paroled when you're on a life sentence, and also then how do you begin to understand whether or not you have enough of fortitude and will to pursue something like that. Yeah, the the prison transfer played a huge role in, in I mean, it, it's in my book, as you saw, those, that's the hook on it, the thing, but it just kind of, I, in prison, the culture of prison, men do not share their prison hearing transcripts. So when they, when they go to the pro board, it's an actual transcript of what the commissioner says and what the prisoner says. And men in particular did not share these but for some reason, one of my friends decided to let me read all of his, which he had like six or seven of them. And I had never gone to the parole board. When I started reading them, it opened my eyes to what's happening inside that parole process. And at the same time, I was since I was reading all these other books on like making amends and restorative justice and personal responsibility, they all seemed to tie in like I could use the themes that I'm understanding in my own journey of making myself better. And applying it to why he was not getting found suitable. And I realized what he told me happened at the pro board and what actually happened were two different things. And then also more importantly, I felt, I think I see why the pro commissioners are denying him as I'm reading the transcripts. And then at the end, when they're denying him parole, they're laying out the same exact things I saw in what he said. So I realized it's so important what people say or listen to what people say. And then more importantly, what these uh, at some point to what comes out of my mouth because it kind of describes on how I see the world. So I just began sitting down with him and, you know, basically like, Hey, I told him like, Bobby, I think I could help you pro. So he sat down with me. People thought we were crazy because they said like, what are you and Quan doing? And Bobby tells them Quan's helping me prepare for the board. And they said, how can Quan help you when he's never been to the pro board? But yet, maybe that's probably why I think I was able to help because I came from it with a fresh lens. Like, this is not what everybody in here, you know, like that prison culture of this is what the belief is and just take on that belief. I looked at it with a different place. And since men never shared, nobody ever knew what was going on. Everyone only knew what their experience was. And I came in from an outside perspective and got to see this is why he's getting denied. And it's not because these are people that are out to get us. Yes, many of them are from law enforcement background and have this mindset, but I think if we can just connect to them as human beings and, and understanding our journeys and, 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 and telling them like, this is where I failed. You know, unfortunately, I got to read quite a bit of transcripts later on during uh, my latter years and the vast majority of men, and I guess, and in general, the vast majority of humans do not want to accept responsibility for mistakes they have done, whether it's committing murder to, you know, something little like uh, arguing with their bunkie or, or or something like that. It's just they do not want to say, I mean, like even in listening, people say, 
I am sorry. It's I, it's not just okay. I am sorry for doing this. It's I'm sorry for doing this, but it's because you did this, 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 this. So it's I, I saw it happening over and over and over, and that's when I started talking to the guys and said, "This is where you're coming across wrong." And I think if you just owned it, because I realized as I owned my own mistakes, it came with a sense of power and liberation because I don't have to worry about impressing anybody around me. I could just say, this is where I did wrong and being okay with it instead of trying to impress everybody around me and live up to this, this expectation that I'll never be able to live up to. And yeah, that's, that's just how the process began. And a lot of people were doubtful until I helped one of my friends get found suitable. He came back and was found suitable at the pro board and suddenly, okay, other men wanted to start sitting with me to coach them. And at the time I knew, okay, this man's motivation is to just go home, which is fine. But my motivation is to share this huge sense of freedom I found and hopefully get them to this place so that they don't need to have to go home before they're already making an impact and, and where they're already trying to give back on the yard. And the ones that that actually understood it in a weird way is the same ones that were actually most likely to be found suitable that I saw later on. So they, right. they were all, they're all tied in together. Right. So let's talk about your journey. So you're helping people. You're showing people that there is a possibility. They just need to understand what they need to do personally before they're considered. It's not just about how to get out. It's about, that's not the goal. The goal is to transform into the person you're saying you, you are when you're not. So what, what was your process like? So, so of course, I, you know, you, you're wanting to also to apply these things. Talk about that. What, like as you're helping people, what was the, the shift? as you start to apply it to yourself. You're finding more peace. You're reading, you're learning, you're committing to helping and serving in your own in space that you're in. What was the journey that happens next? Let me see. I, I, the more people that I sat down with, you know, one of the requirements I said is they had to give me their arrest paperwork. They had to give me their psych evals and they had to let me get to read their transcripts if they had gone to the board. And as I notice I'm able to help them, I see a lot of like, if I'm seeing like something about them that I started to notice, this is because I also have this same issue or I have this same problem. So a lot of the times, not only am I helping them, I knew they in their way were also helping me to continue to build on what I was trying to build for myself, if that makes sense. And then suddenly, I don't know, like it just, those last few years before I was paroled, it felt like I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. I didn't have these these dreams of I hope to one day be home. It's, it's more I'm living in this present moment. I am here during this time to help these men at this time. That's mm-hmm. that's the only way I could describe it. Yeah, that's great. How do you reconcile or how do you help other people reconcile the fact that you did murder someone, you were responsible for the death of someone else? How do you reconcile that now? And how do you did you reconcile it when you were getting out and, and, and standing before a parole board to help them understand why you should even be worthy of um, going free into the society? Yeah, I'll share two stories. So one of the first ones, even after I began this process of, you know, my process of transformation or what do we want to call it, but this process of change and self-examination, um, I still carried that guilt I still carried that identity it was inside one of the workshops I was in there was an exercise that it was called who am I and I was supposed to write on 10 strips of paper 
like the question was, who are you? And, you know, I wrote brother, son, you know, all these things. But one of the words I described myself was murderer. And then the exercise they asked us to go through and crumple up that, like open up that piece of paper. Like, so I opened up that list that said murderer. They say crumple it up and drop it. Imagine if you did not describe yourself in this way. Imagine if this was no longer part of you. How would this feel? And then I realized, why am I holding on to this? Yes, I committed murder, but that does not mean, that does not define me. I do not have to call myself a murderer for the rest of my life. And understanding that and, and realizing like, okay, this is still a form of me just holding on and being prideful. Like if especially I'm talking about from the perspective of my faith and when they're talking about forgiveness, like who am I to say that I cannot be forgiven? If, oh yeah, this is the, I'm the worst person ever. I mean, that's still a form of pridefulness. And so I realized I don't have to hold on to this to still feel remorse and to still feel that I have to give back. And that's that was where I started to let that title for myself or that way descriptor for myself go. Of course, there were times when it would rear its head up again. And then at least I would catch myself and then I could just, like, you know, gently remind myself, I'm not a murderer anymore. You know, I committed murder, but I am not a murderer which is two different distinctions in my head. And I could feel it when I say it. So at my second hearing, even the district attorney brought this up where, because I was denied, I was given a five-year denial at my first hearing. And then I petitioned to advance my hearing and come back early. So I, I came back early about a year and a half after. And the district attorney had was really pressing me inside of the board hearing. Like, how can you say that you feel bad or you feel so bad why would you petition this paper, this paperwork to go back to board early? You just want to go home. And I almost fell into it just thinking, you know what? He's right. I am. Why? I do feel bad. And that's true. And I go, wait, this does, these are two, we're talking about two separate things. I mean, if, if I hold on to this thing where I say I'm never forgivable, I'll always be a murderer. Yeah. Then I can sit there and feel sorry for myself the rest of my life and be in prison and rot and die. But then how does that serve anybody around me? How does that help my family? How does that help? me and what I'm doing with helping men on the yard to heal and to make an impact and to give back. And particularly if I'm doing that, then I should be trying to go home because I do want to come home to, to make an impact and to give back. And, and I would have to say now, you know, my book is now published and, you know, there's going to be, I think just from the first week of sales, like I was matching everyone that's purchased to donate to prison. So there's going to be over a thousand books that's going to be going in that I'm going to be able to give to men that are incarcerated and women that are incarcerated and hope, you know, this is how I'm giving back. And yes, I committed murder, but this is a way I will always carry. And I said, so that's probably the best way I could describe it. This is how I reconcile it. That's something I, I did in my past. I'm no longer the same person. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Right. What was your age when, uh, when you were committed for life? Uh, 23, 24. I was found guilty when I was 24, I think. I went to trial and I was found guilty. Yeah. Right. First went in at 17 what, and in and out. And yeah, I think it was 23, 24. What do you say to, to people who are maybe still in a place of hurt or harm or judgment when they think that you're free when someone's life's taken or, or reconciling even with that family in your own mind, the people that have lost somebody because of violence? Um, not that that person wasn't at all at somehow at some, at a harm. I'm not saying that at all or sorry, at fault. But how do you reconcile that now that you're here or to anybody who brings that up to you? Because obviously it's not a perfect road. You're, we'll talk a little bit about 
what happens and what you're doing now that you're out. But how do you address those issues? Well, I mean, I it would be the same. Like I know, like somebody, let's say, if I, I run into a victims group or a victims advocacy group, I'm sure sooner or later this conversation will come up. I mean, I posted about my book launch last week when it came out, and one of the groups I posted in was this Asian um, networking group, which is pretty active. And I was very particular in what I said. Like, you know, I, I went to prison on January 15th, 1999. I shot and killed Mr. Moon and I, I left his name and the date. And it was overwhelming a lot of positive responses. One in particular stood out where this woman says, I remember that day very well also. That's the day my best friend was killed. Da, 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 da. And she went in and laid out how, what I did. And it was, when I read it, I was so shocked. I was sad. I didn't know what to say, but yet I, I saw that she came from such a place of, you know, I don't think it was, I won't say forgiveness, but she wanted to understand more. And she, and she's like, I was supposed to be there that day. It was my birthday that he was going up to that club. I didn't show up because one of my friends was sick. And for me, it was, I just had to reach out and say, okay, I am so sorry for taking your friend's life. Like, what would you be willing to share with me about him? And just trying to listen. So I think some from victims or from somebody, you know, I'm sure there's going to be people to say, this guy should have never been released. He's a monster or, you know, he, he did the unthinkable. He killed a person in cold blood. And my answer would have to be, yes, I did do that. But yes, I mean, but yes, I am no longer the same person. And that's why I, I lead the life I do. I mean, this is the way I will carry. And I know that saying truly well, let's say, even if my book goes on to affect all 1,000 of these incarcerated people, that will still not make up for the life of one human being that I took off the face of the earth. I know that. But I, I realize this is my way of, of giving back. And it's my way of, I guess, reconciling it in, in, in my, in my head. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And appreciate letting me ask that question. Tell people what you're doing now. So you get released after, you know, being in prison for almost 20 plus years. Yeah. What happens next? What are you doing now? Help people understand the, the picture that we're painting here because this, we want there to be redemption. People are hoping for a positive outcome. It's not that you're just writing a book. Tell us more about that process. Yeah. I work full-time at a nonprofit that helps men and women with creative mental histories uh, transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. It's called uh, DeFi Ventures. I am also, I also was involved in the program when I was still doing my life sentence, came home, stayed involved with them, and created my uh, first company six months after. It's a commercial cleaning company. So pre-COVID, I had a team of seven seven employees, but and five of those seven were formerly incarcerated themselves. And I tell everyone, those are by far my best workers. But then COVID happened, like in a span of four or six weeks, I saw canceled contract after canceled contract. So we lost like 70% of our revenues and I had filed for the Paycheck Protection Program. But because I was on active parole, they disqualified me. But then somehow, like a couple news outlets found out, the ACLU took up a class action lawsuit on my behalf, and then they, they paired with Defy Ventures to sue the SBA. And we got the SBA to change the language for small business owners with criminal histories to allow some of us to be able to qualify, which I did. So I was able to get my PVP on June 30th, which was the last day of the, the program at the time before they extended it. And with that little bit extra money, I said, okay, now how do I pivot what our company has done? These offices are closed. What's the problem? You know, in entrepreneurship and in DeFi, we say, what's the problem? How are we solving it? And the problem was 
you know, COVID and sanitation. And so our company pivoted into that. Yeah, I think today I am very proud and happy to announce that we're in the process of interviewing, training, and onboarding about 28 new employees nationally that, that I've, I was able to partner, formalize a partnership with a disinfectant company. So yeah, so that's happening. And I actually reached out to other organizations in other states to see if they work with the formerly incarcerated, because I'd like to give an opportunity for these uh, our returning citizens to find meaningful work and to work at a place where I could see using the skill sets that they've learned in prison to better themselves, to apply out here and, and to make this where they can earn more than just minimum wage and I could pay them and pay them so that look into getting them benefits and all that. Yeah, so that's basically what I'm up to. And my book launched last week. So yeah, the been a, it's been a whirlwind of a four and a half years, almost five years. Awesome. We talked a little bit about it, but let's talk about for just two minutes here. I mean, the book process. What was it like writing the book? Describe to the people who were thinking about writing the book how you did it, how long it took you, and any learnings you might have after doing that. Yeah. Let me see. I When I committed to the team at Strive, it was six days a week, one hour a day, 250 words a day. That was minimum. So, And I kept at it for six days a week. It was difficult. It was challenging. Yet it was therapeutic all at the same time. I remember some of the chapters where I had to put myself back into my younger years, especially in juvenile hall and the California Youth Authority. I really questioned, like, do I want to be here? Like, why would I want to write this story? You know, every fiber of my being wanted out of prison. And now here I am placing myself back into it. But then I realized this story is not about me. It's for the men that I left behind. And if that's what I'm trying to do, then this is a small sacrifice that I have to do to help them on their way. So I think realizing, and you know, maybe if, if somebody's writing, considering writing a book, being clear first on who they want to write it for. And then once they understand that, then just always reminding themselves, yeah, it's not about the writer. It's like, who are you writing for? And I could just look at that and then try to share stories off of who I'm trying to write the book for. That's awesome. Great advice for anyone trying to write a book. Quan, it's been such a pleasure. We could learn so much from your book. Your book was challenging for me and inspiring at the same time because it gives me hopes of redemption of each individual's ability to find themselves. And I want to thank you so much for that. It's been a wonderful opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening again to another episode of Authors Who Lead. We appreciate you being here and we hope you subscribe so you get this delivered to your device every week. And if you haven't left us a review, please do so. It really helps. And if you have a book in your heart, you've been wanting to write a book, please go to authorswholead.com and join us on this journey of becoming a published author. 